A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Takeshi Hayatsu, director of the London-based practice Hayatsu Architects. Takeshi was born in Japan and moved from Tokyo to London in 1993 to study at the Architectural Association before working for practices including David Chipperfield, Hayworth Tompkins, and 6A Architects, where he worked for 11 years before setting up his own practice in 2016. Takeshi and I recorded our conversation over Zoom in February of 2022, where I reached him at his studio in Bermondsey, and we talked about, among other things, the influence of Japan's so-called Red School Architects on Hayatsu's own approach to design and his interest in symbolism and animism in architecture as human gestures that can pay respect to nature. We also discussed the process of co-designing architecture and how Hayatsu enables meaningful participation with the communities he's designing for without losing his own sensibility or identity as a designer. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I was drawn to Archigram and uh, kind of a high-tech kind of uh, architecture. Really? Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was so kind of uh, inspired by their work when I was in Tokyo, when I was studying uh, bachelor, that kind of degree course. Um, I was a big fan of future systems. So hmm. um, that's why I came to the UK originally. I mean, the Arculum was long gone. I mean, I realized that, you know, when I went there. Um, and then, yeah, Peter Salter and Peter Bielsel was teaching uh, materials and geologies, uh, landscape, that sort of a uh, more kind of tangible material-based uh, teaching. Interesting. So it sounds like there's this dichotomy or this balance between the ideas that Archigram were espousing around relationships between architecture and media and the, the speculative value of hypothetical architectural projects that reimagine the cities we live in. And then on the other hand, people like Peter Salter, who are so engaged with sensation and the haptic, the way we touch and feel and kind of engage with space. So tell me more about what was going on, I guess, in your head as a student, as you were sitting between these two poles. It was a really struggle. I mean, mostly to do with my kind of uh, limited ability to speak and, and listen the English language. Um, but also the work I was hoping to carry on from the degree work somehow 
it was not quite right. I mean, yeah. and the, my fourth year was year work was uh, yeah basically sort of a collagen jellyfish with a kind of baby and I don't know floating in the world, that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds totally surreal. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I I wanted to. Well, my my degree work is is, is called jellyfish architecture. So there's no straight lines, everything kind of curvy and sort of floating in the water, that sort of stuff. Uh, was sort of so this is, what, this is what you were producing at the AA? Uh, no, I was producing. This is still Tokyo. Yeah, it was Tokyo and then carried on at the AA. Mm. But we, I came to sort of a yeah, wall that I can't mm. you know, continue. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on the weird early stages of your, your ideas about architecture as a student, but this is really intriguing to me. Could you talk more about the obstacles you faced and the transition you made away from this highly speculative, uh, what sounds like biophilic kind of work into something which I imagine is more pragmatic. Yes, yeah, so I felt I needed something more more kind of tangible, um, not just the sort of ideas or concept. Um, Peter's unit was the only one who was dealing with light and shadows and weathering and decay all this sort of fascinating stuff, but, you know, I had no idea. Um, and that, that, you know, failed my diploma work afterwards. We couldn't finish. Mm. Um, Peter said, yeah, and you need to repeat a year. So, which, which worked, you know, well in the end, but yeah, it was, a, was also a struggle. I mean, what was that like being a foreign student in an environment which I can only imagine is incredibly I guess an environment that privileges the verbal. I mean, a lot of architectural schools, I'm sure there's less of an emphasis on the rhetoric around a project. But again, at the AA especially, this conceptual drive and this interest in almost the way that language itself becomes a kind of ornament of a project. I can imagine that must have been a real challenge. And like, how did you come to terms with that? Or how did you find your way as someone who speaks English as a second language? I was always, I think, good at art from really small uh, child and uh, drawing and make models. Um, so that was the only way I can communicate. You know, I just make drawing and make models, objects, um, with very few words, so mm. um, of course that's quite quite limited means to to communicate. But still, I have something to communicate, and uh, that's why I, yeah, it was a very tough time at the AA, but still somehow managed to survive through. Mm. And then, following your time at the AA, you worked for David Chipperfield and then briefly for Hayworth Tompkins, and then maybe most significantly for 6A, where you stayed for 11 years. I'm, I'm most interested to understand what happened to you having moved through an office like 6A. Uh, uh, when I joined 6A, that was the, probably the smallest practice I joined. Um, there was a five of us when I started, also the youngest practice, I guess, in terms of uh, 
how, how much they are established. Um, again, another liberation in some way that uh, uh, how Tom and Steph operates at the A, uh, no, at the, sorry, at 6A um, was uh, about um, designing the architecture <coughs> is, uh, is not the concept. Again, this kind of coming back to this uh, idea of a anti-concept almost. So, you know, conversation was all about how you put things together and how you make things to happen. So those are the two drive that, you know, really Tom and Steph were pushing. And uh, uh, so, yeah, no, no nonsense, no bullshit, basically. <laughs> Just <laughs> discussing how, <laughs> how things put together. So it's, it was, it was mm. quite, quite, quite good, I thought. It was, uh, you know, um, cleared all somehow a lot of my mind as well. Mm. Focusing more on this, this anti-concept approach to architecture, which is interested primarily in how things are put together, as you say. Your first, I think it was your first independent project, was a collaboration with the Japanese architect Teranubu Fujimori to build a tea house at the Barbican Center in London for the Japanese house exhibition that was held in 2017. And I read in another interview that you described two different schools of architecture the exhibition set out to portray. And these were the white and the red schools. Um, and they aligned with the two um, one-to-one -one scale models that were installed in the Barbican itself. So Fujimori was one of them his tea house, which you built. And then um, I think it was Ryan Nishizawa's uh, Moriyama house as well. So in a way, these ex exemplified two different poles in Japanese architecture. So can you talk more about these different poles or these different schools and where you situate your own practice in relation to them? Yes. Um, I don't think uh, the Barbican or curator has said this is actually representing red and white. Um, this red and white is uh, again Fujimori's idea. He he coined this term in I think 1980s um, that uh, you can describe Japanese architects in two types: red group or white group, or white school or red school. So the white represents the brain. And uh, if you open up the head, the brain is is white, and uh, which is also the the abstraction and the concept. So it's it's about sort of a, a head, you know, in your head mm. sort of thing. And whereas the cerebral, yeah. Whereas the red is, represents blood. Um, it's it's about gut. It's about uh, body. So it's about feeling. And there are many shades of pink in between, so that's the kind of a <laughs> spectrum. And uh, it's quite quite interesting that you know you put it in that way. You think you know, so where am I belongs to? So I mean, it probably goes without saying you you probably stand more with the red school. Oh, definitely, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be interesting to learn a little more about Fujimori as an architect. I'm not sure how familiar listeners would be with his work. But as you say, he's very idiosyncratic and fantastical as well. Looking at his work and preparing for the interview, 
I felt like I was dreaming most of the time. I felt like I was in some kind of um, almost cartoon reality. And the reason I say that is because there are no, often very few straight lines. The projects often seem to defy gravity. And they seem to engage with the world almost from the perspective that a child would engage with the world in the best possible way. I mean, could you tell me a little more about your relationship with Fujimori, uh, as well as other architects like him working in Japan that might not be familiar to an audience in the UK or, or elsewhere? I knew his work uh, before he started doing his architectural design. I mean, he started like age of 40. He was, he's actually an architectural historian who uh, wrote many, many books. Um, he still writes, that's his main job. Um, uh, you know, designing architecture is a hobby in some way. Um, but uh, I, I was and I am still a big fan of his writing and he, I read his most of his books. Um, and uh, when he, he came to the UK, he installed this tea house in Vienna. I think it was also 2010. Um, I went to see his uh, talk event with Richard Wentworth, this uh, uh, British artist. Um, it was a good combination, actually. They had a kind of common uh, interest in terms of uh, street observations and stuff. Um, and then uh, after the lecture, I went up to, to the to the stage and show him Raven Law picture. And uh, hmm. I made this building here in the UK, used the char timber and stuff like that. Would you like to come have a look? And uh, he said, yeah, so let's meet tomorrow. I'll come to see your building. I was quite, quite shocked, you know, it's so, so <laughs> spontaneous and so casual and, you know, and uh, clearly he's interested. So I took him and showed him around and, and uh, yeah, he blasted, you know, laugh uh, when he saw this uh, charred timber cast into cast iron. <laughs> he said, mm-hmm. uh, I never seen anything like this before. So I was like, oh, yes, I made, <laughs> made him say that. Um, so since then, kind of in touch. And uh, when I started teaching program at the Kingston, I always wanted to do this uh, red school research. Um, so visiting red school architects in Japan and meet them and see their building work with students. So including Fujimori. Fujimori is, he himself uh, described dark red almost sort of mm-hmm. black. Um, mm. So he's, uh, he's one of them. Um, his uh, best friend, uh, Osamu Ishiyama, is another uh, contemporary architect to the same sort of uh, age as uh, Fujimori. He's, uh, he's quite, quite eccentric uh, building, um, quite well known in Japan. Uh, um, he's a sort of, uh, I guess, the same generation as Toyo Ito and other. And then also trace back to a little bit earlier, 1960s work, this uh, Yoshizaka, uh, Takamasa Yoshizaka. He's, uh, he worked with, for Le Corbusier and he came back to Japan and he is a sort of, a, I guess, god, godfather of Japanese Corbusier school. Mm. Um, 
And uh, so his wife, he was, he's not around, but he, I saw his uh, colleague, uh, Yuko Saito, she took us around to, to show us this uh, seminar house building in, in, in uh, uh, Hachioji, in the uh, suburb of Tokyo. And then this... But just as a note, just as a note to listeners, I'll have a list of these names in the show notes for anyone who's interested in, in learning more. But sorry, yeah. I can interrupt. Please continue. Yes. <laughs> and then this guy called Keisuke Oka, he's... Uh, contemporary young guy who is building this uh, concrete house in middle of Tokyo uh, by himself for more than more than 10 years. It's, it's called uh, uh, Mitano Gaudi. Like, uh, yeah, he's a quite eccentric guy too. He was also part of this Japanese house exhibition. He came over to London actually for the opening. Um, um, and yeah, um, so what was the question? Sorry, I've lost that from now. <laughs> I mean, the, the question, I think you answered it, it's in part just um, situating people like Fujimori amongst other architects who are part of this so-called Red School. And I think there's an increasing attraction to this way of making architecture. In a talk you gave recently, I think it was for the 100 Day Studio, this was back in 2020 actually, uh, a lecture series that the Architecture Foundation put on. Um, you gave a talk called From the Ground, and in part, you were describing this definition of nature that was against science and an interest for you in the accidental and the coincidental. And I think most importantly, the immeasurable. And you talked about your interest in surrealism and that which occurs beyond the conscious mind. And I feel like all of these things for me are really embodied in in this kind of red school approach to architecture, where we can start to think about nature in a way that is quite surreal. And at the same time, we're understanding and learning more about craft and technique and the kind of pragmatics of construction. I guess, first of all, I wanna ask, would you agree with that assessment? Because there's more, there's more I wanna ask along those lines, if so. <laughs> Um, so these architects, um, perhaps including myself, um, I'm not sure. Yeah. The craft is a kind of a funny word. The, mm. actually Tom Emerson consciously avoid using that word because it's so loaded. Um, Fujimori hates craft. Actually, he, he almost sort of anti-craft, um, Mm. Uh, deliberately, it's quite quite mischievous actually. So quite quite kind of provoking as well in terms of the work with craftspeople. Hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, Ishiyama as well. I mean, he puts things un sort of thinkable, unimaginable. Not the sort of craftspeople would do things like mm. putting the traditional plaster onto the web of the steel beams and stuff. It's quite quite bonkers. Um, it's all, there's a lot to do with the DIY and, uh, and uh, this idea of a bricolage, I guess it was quite strong at uh, 6A while I was up there, you know, Irene Scalba were around and, you know, we were developing this idea of a bricolage as a means to, to conceive architecture. And, um, and then, yeah, you know, this, uh, 
postman cheval in, in southern France who built this ideal palace using the... Sorry, who is this? Uh, this is cheval, cheval, I don't know how to pronounce it pro- properly. Oh, okay. So listeners can't see what I'm looking at, but it's a highly ornate... Yes. Um, it looks like, a, like an above-ground grotto. Yeah, this is uh, his dream, basically. He constructed this uh, construction using his uh, uh, memories and also the images he saw in, on the postcard he was delivering. It, it all made out of uh, pebbles, the round stones, and also the uh, cement, I guess, um, or lime mortar uh, built from ground. And uh, this was quite influential piece of architecture that uh, um, the French uh, surrealist referred to. Oh, so wow. this is kind of early stage uh, before the surrealism was coined. Um, but uh, the, the, this is, a, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a savageness or, mm. or, or madness. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's something that you know, he had an urge to build this for mm-hmm. his life, you know, kind of over 30 years or so to, to complete. Um, I, I'm reading here, this is just a Wikipedia article, but it's part of a, a genre or type or style of architecture that's been referred to as naive art architecture. And maybe it's that childlike quality that we're discussing in um, these other Red School architects you mentioned that applies to Chevelle's work as well. This insistence on resisting a certain correctness or properness or conformity when it comes to the culture of construction and the culture of architecture. Yes. So thanks for clarifying that. That's really helpful, actually, to to understand that, first of all, um, craft is a dangerous word. Or not dangerous, but can be easily misrepresented or mm. misunderstood. Yeah. And it's actually about, in a way, this naive approach to construction that makes, that is about making do, I guess, to some degree with what you have. You mentioned Richard Wentworth, and it's interesting that you actually um, met Fujimori at a Richard Wentworth talk. <laughs> that there is this kind of, consensus or affinity between, first of all, Wentworth's photography and art, which is observational and delights in the ways in which um, these strange juxtapositions of materials or these strange constructions appear in everyday environments. And the fact that Fujimori was there, and his work is, of course, as well, I guess now, as you've described it, about finding his own way in construction or creating his own form of craft based on what's available and based on his own imagination. Yeah, so Fujibori belongs to this uh, group called Street Observation Rojo, uh, which was uh, uh, led by artist Genpei Akasegawa, who uh, has uh, unfortunately passed away. Um, but sti- still, he was the driver of the, 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 the group. And uh, Genpei Akasegawa's work is very similar to Richard Wentworth's work. He does this mm. uh, photographic uh, uh, work with uh, some words with it. So it's uh, kind of almost describing as a poetry in some way together. Mm. Mm. 
and uh, he's uh, he, one of the the work that he described is uh, he he feels the god is on the street mm. because you you feel something there that uh, but you can't really catch and then you somehow capture some kind of glimpse of it through the photograph but it's always slips away hmm. um he's talking about coincidence i think you know the thing that you can only capture on that moment and it disappears hmm. i don't know then so that is i found really interesting i think what fujimori is doing my understanding was through the work I've done with him in the Barbican that the witnessed that uh, um, we were putting this uh, charcoal interior uh, we were gluing these uh, bits of charcoal from uh, barbecue bag onto this uh, plastered uh, room as a kind of decoration and he told me not to think and if you start thinking you started composing and then that kills the design mm-hmm. so he said that you just just pick the one that you, from your tray uh, without thinking and the speed is important you just do it as quick as you can and that I found really fascinating because that, that what happens is you pick the large piece first and then stick them because that's how, how you grab them fast and then started becoming smaller so the the, the pattern become the process of how you pick the pieces and that's not really you can't design that you can only design it through the actions mm. i think he's looking for the opportunities like this and uh i that's the kind of yeah the work i would like to do to to create that sort of a uh room or opportunities to to happen that un- unexpected result mm. um I do respect the craftspeople as well. I mean, I, I really admire the, their knowledge and skills. So my ideal world would be that, you know, combine the two. So uh, the superstructures or, or whatever that you know, built by the high, uh, to the highest quality by the, the craftspeople. And then some areas that can, the, the public or, or lay people can participate to do some accidental stuff that add to the, to the I don't know, mm. um, character or, or charm to the building. Mm-hmm. Um, I missed something. Um, no, I think that was, that, that was really clear. And I, I think the question, the question I keep coming back to is how this mode of designing and construction and this degree of chance and variability um, and the sense, I guess, of fantasy can start to be translated from these prototypical works into a commercial architecture, or whether or not that's even possible. I think the future is in design and build. <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I say this because uh, I had a tremendous experience working on the Churchill College building at 6A. That was my last project um, delivered at 6A. Uh, this core one called the New Student Accommodation Building in Cambridge. Um, new build, like a 3,600 square meters or so, fairly large, uh, nearly sort of 10 million pound contract sum. Um, was 
done by design build contract. That that was like a dream project to me that uh, uh, we had a workshop every week with a different trade uh, ahead of program. So there's, they had a, a SDC, the builders from Midland, uh, had a really good um, contract manager that uh, program all these uh, activities on time. And uh, yeah, we designed together with uh, actually the people who are building it. Um, and that was, that was, you know, I, I thought, you know, why can't every building build like this? Mm. You know? And uh, um, so, I don't know, I think, uh, and also, yeah, we, we introduced this 150-year-old uh, uh, French railway oak uh, as a cladding, which is all buttered and dirty and, and uh, but, you know, um, that was also, you know, not, non, you know, NBS standard specification as such, but we, we managed to do that because of the involvement of builders. Um, so, yeah, I think future is bright in that sense. Mm. I don't know if we can manage that. I know it's a special situation. It's a high-profile project and a healthy budget, and and also the contractor was really up for the go for the university jobs. So they, you know. Uh, was really supportive, so all this setup was correct. But I, I guess my hope is that you know putting the appropriate people in the appropriate place to uh, deliver the most out of them, um, whether that is the highly crafted uh, builders or, or lay people doing some crowding, or um, you just need to I don't know you need to know where to to put them. Um, I guess um, this is probably um, my role as an architect. Many of these projects, or many of your projects, could be described as co-design, which is essentially being authored by a broader community, as opposed to you or your practice alone. On the other hand, maybe many of your co-design projects, including your work for Geisler Arts in Coniston and the Blue Market in Bermondsey, can somehow be clearly attributed to your studio. So I want to understand how you control the co-design process to enable meaningful participation without losing your own sensibility or identity as a designer. Uh, I think the when we interject certain point, uh, example of this coniston that when we resize the structure and then reconfigured, that's probably when we have our influence on in terms of uh, proportions and dimensions. Um, that's I think uh, the architect's role in some way is the giving the dimensions and deciding the proportions, and that that's when yeah you know it's quite intuitive in some way. I mean you know we. I kind of give certain dimensions because I think it's more beautiful. Um, but also coming from the certain experience, uh, for example, the Blue Barbanzi clock tower is the same footprint, three meter by three meter, as the tea house, uh, Fujimori tea house in the Barbican, the Japanese house exhibition. 
I knew the scale of the the, the space and how many people can fit, and uh, so we should use that dimensions applied to that. And then the the cladding has to be tall enough away from the ground that you cannot reach that you know that any vandalism can happen. So this kind of a judgment from the experience and also the practical pragmatic requirements. But uh, at the end of the day, the size of the components, dimensions, and proportions are controlled by, by us. You've explained elsewhere that you're interested in symbolism and animism in architecture as human gestures that pay respect to nature. And I want to understand how these ideas manifest in your own work. That idea came through probably my um, visit to Japanese uh, buildings, um, temples and shrines, especially. Um, since I moved to here, I try to go back to my country at least once a year. I mean, it's got disrupted by pandemic now, but uh, um, every time I go back there, I try to see um, as many uh, great buildings as possible. I never visited while I was there. And uh, through then, um, I kind of realized that uh, all this uh, special places the, the place is already special this is you know mountain or amazing trees or rock or river or something that the nature already possess the special sort of power and uh, the building were there to actually amplify that so the building came after where the, the the place has this sort of power already and the buildings are acting almost like a flame of the of the nature so when you inside, you sort of frame certain views or certain ways that you appreciate more. And uh, this uh, probably root back to the, the Shintoism, that the Shinto believes that uh, 8 million gods exist in, in the world, that from the mountain to even the object. There is also, you know, the, the golden in toilet, <laughs> and, uh, which is very interesting because um, I remember clearly that when my family had this uh, mountain hut in, in near Mount Fuji, we went there every summer vacations, and uh, the, it's so basic, the, the mountain that was a septic tank toilets there, and it has a big hole um, and, and the floor, and uh, you can't see the bottom, it's so, so dark, and uh, I'm always scared to go there, especially nighttime. But uh, I always imagine some monsters lurking underneath, and under, under, under there. Um, that sort of fear and the darkness and something beyond your control that exists in the, even in a sort of a man-made uh, room like a toilet, um, is something that I don't know, it's quite important. You somehow forgot, especially sort of the, the modernism movement, especially in Japan, you know, everything lit in, you know, light, fluorescent light, and there's no shadow there. Um, that also 
go back to maybe teaching of Peter Salter. You know, he's he was talking about shadow and how important shadow is. Um, that uh, um, leads to the I think uh, somehow respect to to the nature itself. That's uh, another thing to to mention is uh, Japan is, is lots of natural disasters that beyond your control. I mean, ground shakes, so you know the earthquake and and what that happens, you know, just you uh, you feel so powerless. You just have to rely on what happens next. You respect, I think, the nature more. Especially, I don't know, in this country, UK, there's no earthquake, no major natural disasters. People tend to become, I think, um, arrogant that uh, you can control everything, but uh, it's not that. So animism and symbolism, this is something I'm very interested in, that uh, um, especially as a metaphor of nature, that, uh, that people pay respect to, um, that should really come back more, especially this uh, 21st century, which is, uh, you know, the age of environmental crisis. Um, I'm really drawn to this, I guess, the potential utility of symbolism to start to reorient people's attention or awareness. Um, and... I think seemingly because everything needs to have some kind of utility when it comes to <laughs> to architecture today. There's this real uh, emphasis on building performance when we talk about environmentalism and sustainability. But ornament can have a function. And as we've learned from people like Farshid Musavi, there's a function of ornament and there's a utility to ornament that I think you're getting at when you talk about the importance of symbolism in buildings and the importance of animism, which is a different idea altogether, but is essentially understanding the inherent kind of uh, beingness or living quality of seemingly inanimate objects. And I think to that point, I really experienced that when I see images of projects like um, the one in Milton's, Milton Keynes, the Modernist Glade project, or even the Made in Bermondsey project. In both cases, there are raised foundations for these pavilion structures that consist of large stone boulders. And then a light timber frame balances on top of them. And in such a simple gesture, <laughs> of raising the wood above the ground and away from the water. But on top of these bizarre and in some ways unfamiliar objects, you don't expect to see boulders in the city. Um, they're out of place. And maybe this gets at this point about craft that you made, that this is a kind of anti-craft. <laughs> but I feel like in that detail especially, I experience this sense of animism and I encounter... Uh, natural objects or natural materials in a way that is quite jarring and brings me out of this complicitness or this um, false sense of comfort and the fact that uh, in some ways we are in control 
<laughs> or that we can control nature. Um, and I think it's in those kinds of details that I get most excited about the potential of symbolism and the potential of animism, as you've described it. I, I think uh, that's come down to the, to the earlier conversation about my interest in jellyfish and mm -hmm. stuff like this, is that uh, um, the, the nature has the forms that you wouldn't expect to, to, to see. I think, thinking back at the time at uh, Musabi, the Musashinawa University in Tokyo, what I was trying to do was, can I create architecture like jellyfish or inside of a tree? I didn't know how. Um, I'm still searching for it. The, the way, ways to appreciate and, and express using these natural materials is one way. I guess for me, um, there's just a real sense of excitement around this continued search. <laughs> um, and again, how it, how it will continue to manifest uh, in different ways at different scales. Takeshi, thank you so much for your time. Yes, no, thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Takeshi Hayatsu. Thanks as always to Skandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.